We invite you to open up God's Word with me this morning to the New Testament Gospel of Matthew. We're in Matthew chapter 7 today. Matthew chapter 7, if you're using a pew Bible, you can find this text on page 788. But let me encourage you, as always, to open up a copy of the Scriptures so that you can follow along for yourself, so that we can hear and receive the words of, of our God, the words of the living God. We've just sung about... Uh, about the greatness of God's love. We've uh, sung about Jesus the Nazarene, and now we want to hear from him. We want to hear teachings from Christ as we return after a few weeks, uh, focusing in January on being kingdom people. We want to return today to uh, the Sermon on the Mount, looking at these famous words of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and hearing from him, uh, being instructed by him so that we know what it means uh, to follow after him. We're in Matthew chapter 7 today, verses 1 through 6. We invite you as you find your place there uh, in the Bible. Would you join me standing for the reading of God's word? Jesus said, he said, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may... Trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Would you pause with me as we pray? Father, we thank you for these words of of Jesus. Spirit, we pray for your guidance in hearing and receiving them, that we might understand them and apply them to our lives as your people. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Would you do you and I'll do me, for who am I to say what you should do or believe or think or desire? When it comes to religion and morality, isn't that the mantra of our day? Believe what you want, act like you want, so long as it doesn't interfere with me. Hey, don't judge, or you're going to be judged. This is probably one of the most often quoted Bible verses in America today, and no doubt one of the most misunderstood. What is Jesus saying? Well, if we keep reading beyond verse 1, we'll quickly see Jesus doesn't prohibit commenting on the morality of of others. In fact, in places, he commands us to confront those in the wrong. So what does Jesus mean when he says, do not judge? I don't know about you, but I want to know what Jesus means. And in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, the clear connection between this passage, what he says right here, and what precedes it is, is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Something Christ has already addressed quite thoroughly in the previous chapter, in Matthew chapter 6, a chapter that he begins with these words. He says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. 
It goes on in chapter 6, verse 2. He says, when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets. And chapter 6, verse 5, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. Verse 16, when you fast, don't look somber as the hypocrites do. In other words, don't be so wrapped up in the present world chasing materialism, chapter 6, verse 19, and being bogged down with anxiety, chapter 6, verse 25, for such actions provide no evidence of genuine faith in the king of the kingdom. And likewise, Jesus is saying here, hypocritical judgment is another symptom of hearts that have failed to submit fully to Christ as king. What is Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying that hypocritical judgment has no place among God's people. Hypocritical judgment has no place among God's people. Jesus is describing a certain kind of judgment. uh, The kind that pronounces another one guilty before God while ignoring one's own guilt before God. It's a judgmental attitude that focuses on finding the faults of others all the while ignoring one's own sins. Such a person, Jesus says, can expect to be treated in the same way by God. For if we quickly see the sins of others with no consideration of our own, it's quite likely we've not truly dealt with our own. Friends, Jesus condemns hypocrisy and Spiritual inspection without introspection is hypocrisy. Spiritual inspection without introspection is hypocrisy. If I've always got my my spiritual glasses on to see the problems in others without looking into my own heart and practicing hypocrisy, noticing your sin while ignoring my own is hypocrisy. It's claiming to take sin seriously, yet failing to acknowledge personal sin. Jesus goes on, right, and provides an illustration, uh, perhaps one from the carpenter's workshop to highlight his point. He says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your eye? own eye. And notice that Jesus speaks of a brother. The term that Matthew often uses to describe a a fellow believer, another follower of Christ, a disciple of, of Christ. Jesus is telling us right here that there's a right way and there's a wrong way to correct a brother or a sister in Christ. And Jesus is reminding us that our pride runs deep enough that we're all susceptible to practicing hypocritical judgment, every one of us. Of course, we we see this on a regular basis in the news media, do we not? We see, depending on what station that we're watching, what media source we're watching, that certain media sources are aligned with certain political parties. Maybe not all of them, but some quite clearly are. And so uh, they treat issues differently depending on where the issue lies. Of course, a speck of sawdust would be a tiny piece or splinter of wood. That's the word. Hardly visible to the naked eye, but still a problem if it's in your eye. 
I've had a splinter over the weekend. I don't know what my deal is, but I tend to pick up splinters on a regular basis. And I have, I think I got it from a piece of firewood that I picked up and I had this splinter down in my finger and it just happened to be in a place where it was very uncomfortable and I, I couldn't, I couldn't work it out very good. I'd have to use my left hand and pinch it a certain way. And so I started going to different members of my family asking for their help. And then I decided that probably wasn't the best idea either. You gotta be able to see it well and, and feel what you're working with. I remember a, a few not years ago getting something in my eye and not being able to get it out. Like for days, days that seem to turn into weeks. We we know what it's like to have something in our eyes, something invisible to the naked eye in our eye, and how uncomfortable it is. And this particular issue uh, kept going on long enough that I had to go to the eye doctor, and they had to professionally get it out. With the right tools, they could see it clearly and and remove it, but it doesn't it doesn't diminish the severity of of the problem that it was causing. It's a splinter, a speck, a plank, on the other hand, refers to a log or a beam or a rafter. That's used in construction to hold up a ceiling or to, to bar a door shut. You, you can't put a rafter in your eye, right? But Jesus is using such an outrageous image to teach that some sins are indeed more heinous than others. All sins aren't equal. Right? All, all sins are sins. They're not equal. That's, that's popular theology, but it's not biblical theology. All sins are serious, earning sinners the wrath of God, but all sins aren't the same. And Jesus is saying, how can you point out and seek to address the seemingly small sin of your brother when your own spiritual condition is far worse? I think this goes all the way back to what Jesus said at the beginning of this teaching section, the Sermon on the Mount. How does it begin the Beatitudes? He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is what? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, blessed are those who, who know they need God's help. Blessed are those who recognize their own spiritual faults, their own sin, knowing that they need a, a Savior. Jesus is calling His listeners to repent of shallow, hypocritical, external righteousness devoid of inner faith. For only the repentant believer can confront and restore the sinning brother. Only the repentant believer can confront and restore the sinning brother. So there is a place for good judgment. It's the title of today's message. There is a place for good judgment, for looking at the speck in my brother's eye, for lovingly Confronting and correcting a sister in Christ, but only after dealing with my own sin. Jesus says, verse 5, you hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will be able to see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So here's the application, at least the first step of application. Examine your heart and repent of your sins. Examine your heart and repent of your sins. The one who's walking by faith in Christ, the one who's spiritually mature, the one who practices repentance, confessing sin, 
turning from it and trusting in the Lord. The one who practices repentance can see clearly enough to come alongside a brother at fault. Oh, but how foolish it is to think we can help counsel others when we're in need of greater counseling. Examine your heart and repent of your sins. God wants our hearts. He wants our hearts. We've seen this again and again as we look at the Scriptures, as we look at these words of Christ, that Jesus uh, doesn't want outward religiosity. This, this passage, like the whole sermon, is about inner righteousness. The Pharisees, the religious leaders of Christ's day, were experts at outer righteousness, external righteousness that looked good on the outside but was sour on the inside. But true righteousness... The kind we receive by looking to Jesus changes hearts. It changes hearts so that its recipients are quick to repent when they feel the Spirit's conviction. This was David in Psalm 51, verse 17, when he said, My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. A broken spirit, a broken heart. Brokenness over sin against God. Likewise, the Lord spoke to the prophet Joel to a people in rebellion against God, saying, rend your heart, not your garments. Don't tear your clothes alone. Rend your heart. Be broken in your heart over your sin against God. Why? Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious. He is gracious and compassionate. Slow to anger and abounding in love, and He relents from sending calamity. Friends, that's our God. He's good. He's patient with us. He's gracious and He's compassionate with us. He welcomes repentant sinners, a God who forgives sinners, a God who wants fellowship with His people. May we never forget His gracious character. Viewing conviction as a sign of His grace, calling us to turn back to Him. So Jesus doesn't forbid all judgment. That's not what He's saying here. But He's calling for the right kind of judgment. One that's motivated by zeal for God's glory. In fact, we're commanded to speak the truth. What we're instructed in the scriptures to, to restore the sinning brother, but knowing our own tendency to ignore our blind spots, right? Knowing our susceptibility to hypocrisy. How are we to go about this? How do we avoid hypocrisy and yet practice restoration? I think a couple guiding questions that were helpful, at least in my mind, that are in your notes to consider before we confront a brother or a sister in their sin, before we help them out of a particular situation that may not be pleasing to God in their hearts or their lives. A couple guiding questions on the front end to know whether or not we should even step into those things. Number one, am I grieving over sin or looking to criticize? Am I truly grieving over sin Or am I looking to criticize? Before we point out the error of one another's ways, let's examine our hearts. Make sure that pride hasn't swept in. Let's make sure our aim is God receiving the glory that He deserves and our brother or sister knowing, enjoying, and living for Him. Am I grieving over sin or looking to criticize? And number two, do I love you? Or am I trying to look better than you? Do I love you or am I trying to look Better than you. Yesterday was the final day of uh, upward basketball 
for uh, my boys and for a, a number of, of you. And I, I love kids' sports. Like I love watching kids learn to play sports. But one thing I, I've noticed, um, uh, particularly in certain ages, and maybe mainly elementary age and maybe more so boys than girls, but I, I see it in, in, in both, is the tendency to think if I have the ball, uh, I'm the one that needs to shoot, right? I, if I've got the ball, I, I'm better equipped to score than than anyone else on this team. It doesn't matter how many people are are in my face. I, I'm going to get around you because if I, wh- why in the world would I share the ball with you? I'm, I'm trying to prove myself on the court. Now, there are exceptions to that. Uh, my boys are not the exception, trust me. <laughs> but this desire to prove ourselves, it's innate within us. We, we know this. Like, we, we experience this. We we. Learn this and feel this from a very early age that we want to one-up others. We want to prove others. And you see, I'm afraid there's a lot of personal pride disguised as spiritual concern. This tendency doesn't disappear, but only becomes perhaps more subtle with age. Maybe a secret satisfaction in the sins of others, for they make me feel better about myself. But the spiritually mature follower of Jesus confronts her sister in Christ out of love. For she knows the depth of the Father's love for both of them. The love of which the Apostle Paul penned when he wrote in Romans chapter 5. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly, for the wicked. Very rarely, he says, will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Friends, Christ died for us, which means he died for me and he died for for you. And so when it comes to confessing sin, our own or someone else's, may we be motivated by the gospel and the gospel alone. Let love of God, may it motivate us and Lead us and convict us and give us a perspective that allows us to confess our own sins and to come alongside a sinning brother or sister in need by zeal for the God of grace to be glorified by his people. So when it comes to confronting a brother or sister in Christ, examine your heart and repent, repent of your sins and then and only then humbly seek to restore your sinning brother. Humbly seek to restore your sinning brother. Jesus says, deal with your sin, honestly, openly, confessing it to your God, then help your brother deal with his, constructively encouraging a fellow believer who has strayed from the Lord to return to the Lord. In fact, Jesus would later tell his followers in Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, he said, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. Don't ignore it. That's not loving. If your brother or sister is sinning, go, go and point it out. Point out their fault just between the two of you. Don't, don't make a big deal of it just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. Striving for restoration. This is part of what it means to be in God's family, to be a member in the local church. This is one of the reasons I think membership in a local church matters. It's significant because There's accountability to God and to one another in community. To be committed to Christ in the company of fellow believers who are going to help spur you on to know and to follow Jesus Christ. 
Paul would say it this way in Galatians. He says, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Hypocritical judgment has no place among God's people, but Jesus did affirm that his followers who've removed the plank of sin in their own eye are well qualified to humbly and compassionately help others abandon the speck of sin in theirs. In fact, not only are they qualified, but they're commanded. Jesus is actually commanding a form of church discipline, gentle, honest confrontation for the purpose of restoration. We, we don't do that very well. May the Spirit lead us to do that in a way that's faithful to the Word, that's, in a way that's faithful to Jesus, in a way that builds and encourages His church. And By the way, church, I think this is one of those areas where a plurality of elders could be a tremendous benefit to the body of Christ. There's a responsibility as a pastor to care for the flock, to lead the flock, to come alongside Believers in the church. And how much easier, that's not an easy task for anybody, but how, how much better that could be in the company of another coming together to confront a sinning brother or sister that we might together be restored to walking with Jesus. So how, how do we begin to apply a text like this in our own hearts, our own lives? What does that look like? Immediate points of application. Number one, I think practice confession. Let's be people who, who confess our sins. Let's practice confession of sins in our own lives, in our own walk with the Lord. Let's be honest with God. Let's not ignore our sin, but let's confess our sin to God. Practice confession. Practice confession. Another point of application, I think, would be to pray for the spiritual growth of a particular brother or sister. Confess my sins to God and to pray individually, specifically for others. So we begin thinking in terms of, of how can God be glorified in my life and how can God be glorified in the heart and life of a brother or sister in, in Christ. See, the hope of pointing out a brother's sin is always restoration. It's always restoration. And yet, not all are going to be receptive to help in dealing with with sin. In fact, some will despise, mock, and oppose the message of Christ. Some will despise, mock, and oppose the message of Christ. Some will always choose sin over the Savior. Some are so hardened in their sin, they will not only reject the gospel, but they will aim to destroy the ones who share the gospel. In what feels like an odd choice of words, Jesus says in verse 6, Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. What is Jesus saying here? To Jews in the ancient world, both dogs and pigs were unclean. These were not house pets. Uh, these were 
scavengers, wild dogs on the street, regarded as unclean, and to throw sacrificial meat that it's probably a reference here to sacrificial meat, sacrificial meat uh, that was to be set aside for the priest to such scavengers would be to profane what is holy. Neither dogs nor pigs would appreciate the value of such meat. It wouldn't see it any better than any other meat. And Jesus is implying that there are those so steeped in their sin, it's so persistently wicked in their ways that they not only won't appreciate the treasure that is the gospel truth, but will actually despise and oppose those who share it. In a nutshell, I think that's what Jesus is referring to here. And so in the context of preaching God's kingdom, that's what the Sermon on the Mount is about, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ. In the context of sharing the truth of the gospel, Jesus is calling his followers to use wisdom and spiritual discernment in proclaiming that good news, to to follow the example of Paul and to proclaim the gospel to those who tolerate hearing it, but to move on when they adamantly reject it. In essence, Jesus is saying, share God's truth with those willing to hear it. Share God's truth with those willing to hear it. All need it. We all need it. That's not the point. All need it. And to ignore the need of the lost is an altogether different form of hypocritical judgment. In fact, Matthew is one who quite clearly presents the mandate to take the gospel to all nations. But Jesus is saying, use good judgment. I think he's saying carefully consider the response of unbelievers and share the gospel accordingly. Leave the one who resists the gospel and who rebelliously persists in his wicked behavior. Move on. Likewise, when you confront a brother or sister in their sin, Jesus says in Chapter 18, verse 17, if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. In other words, if they don't listen to a gentle confrontation, and it's an issue of persistent, rebellious sin, it's a church matter, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. In other words, treat the unrepentant believer like an unbeliever and move on. See, when it comes to the gospel, we're to hear the truth, we're to believe the truth, we're to live by the truth, and we're to share the truth. And here's the truth. God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is it. This is the gospel. There is no coercion or manipulation or room for self-justification, simply faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. Friend, is your faith in Christ? Have you turned from your sin? Have you confessed it to the Lord? Are you trusting in Jesus for salvation? Friend, turn and trust Jesus today and receive life. See, I hope you're willing to hear the truth today. We, we need the truth. We need the truth of the Scriptures. We need to hear the truth of the Gospel. We need to hear it again and again and respond accordingly. And this is it. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. May we turn and put our faith 
in Him. In just a few moments, we've got the privilege, the opportunity to remember this sacrifice of Jesus, this incredible demonstration of God's love for us through the death of Jesus on our behalf. We've got the opportunity to remember that once again through the Lord's Supper, through the table, through communion. And as we do, we're remembering God's provision for us. We're acknowledging our sin and our failure to live up to His perfect standard of righteousness, and yet we're acknowledging and receiving in faith the gift of His Son, the perfect substitute who gave His Life as a substitutionary sacrifice for your sins and mine. We're demonstrating, once again, our faith in Jesus. And so if you're a believer, we invite you to do that with the church this morning. To do that individually. Certainly we do that collectively as we gather together. Invite you, if you know Jesus, if your faith is in Him, you participate. You take the bread. And eat and remember the body of Jesus that was broken for you. And take it, the cup and drink and remember the blood of Jesus that was shed for your sins and mine. Do so with reverence and thanksgiving. Looking back and believing that the price has been paid in full. And looking up in your heart and knowing that Jesus is alive and well, that He did not remain in the tomb, but He was raised on the third day, and He now is on the throne of heaven at the right hand of the Father. And looking around and seeing that you've been invited to be a part of the company of His people, with brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers and sons and daughters in the faith, celebrating this life that we have together and looking ahead and anticipating the return of this King. One day, He's coming back. He's coming back for all of those whose faith is in Him. Oh, friend, is your faith in Him. Put your faith in Him. If you're a believer, we invite you to participate. If you know, if you're not a believer or you're wrestling with these truths, my encouragement to you would be to spend the next few minutes reflecting on them. Maybe reading the Scriptures. Maybe spend a few moments in, in prayer to God, asking for guidance and knowing what to believe, what to do with this Jesus, whom the Scriptures say died for you. But this ordinance, the ordinance of the table, the Lord's Supper, is given to believers. It's given to the church. So believers, let's participate in it. And before we do, we want to take some time to examine our own hearts. We've talked about that this morning from God's Word, examining our hearts and repenting of our sins. How fitting, how appropriate it is for us to do that even now, right now. Asking the Lord to convict us where we're in sin, that we might confess it to Him, knowing that He is faithful, He is just. He will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let me invite you to bow and do just that together now. Take a moment, examine your heart, repent of your sins. And as you do, I'm going to invite our our deacons who are serving, if they'll come to their places at the table. As they come, let's, let's examine our hearts. Let's repent of our sins. Oh, Father, we pray that your spirit would indeed reveal to us the depth of our sin against you. 
God, as we've seen from these words of Jesus, we know that we are so susceptible to pride, to overlooking our faults, to comparing ourselves to someone else. But Lord, we know that that every one of us have fallen far short, that all have sinned and fallen short of, of your standard of righteousness. Lord, we are sinners in need of a Savior. Forgive us of our sins. And forgive us even, Lord, as believers for forever forgetting or overlooking or ignoring our need for Jesus. And so God, direct us even now to, to the table, to take the bread and the cup and to eat and to drink with joy and thanksgiving. Because we know that you have granted us salvation in Jesus. So Lord, guide us to eat and to drink with faith in Christ. Celebrating the provision of Christ and our reconciliation with you. Lord, guide us even now. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.